please be advised, this podcast contains graphic audio and themes that may not be appropriate for all listeners. I am one of the people that's out there attempting to find your family members. And first and foremost, we want you all to know that we're working very hard and that our hearts go out to all of you. We can't even imagine how difficult this moment must be for everyone, but we are there with you. We are in, in thought and we are there doing everything we can. I promise you that every single rescuer that's out there, the hundreds of rescuers that are out there working 24 hours a day through the rain, through anything that's going on, through the fires, whatever it takes to try to find your family members. That's Maggie Castro. She's a firefighter and paramedic with Miami-Dade Fire Rescue Task Force One. And she's talking to a hotel conference room packed with stunned, heartbroken, but still hopeful people, the families and friends of the missing. It's Saturday afternoon, June 26th, so it's been about 60 hours since Champlain Tower South fell in the middle of the night on Thursday. As she spoke, hundreds of Castro's fellow emergency workers were searching for survivors in the rubble. They have been going nonstop, and there has been no good news. There are times that, obviously, things don't look like they're happening as quickly as we would like them to. And that's understandable. You see us working on television, or you see videos of what's happening. We understand that it appears that it's very slow. But I want you to know that we're going as quickly as we possibly can to maintain the safety of your family members. This was one of the first of the twice daily briefings just for the families, closed to the media, closed to the outside world. I'm Paul Bieben, and in this third episode of Collapse, Disaster in Surfside, we're going inside that briefing room. We're also going to be at the Collapse site following the nonstop search and rescue operation. Now, this is very emotional material. A lot of what you're about to hear has not been broadcast before. And we're able to tell this part of the story of Surfside now, thanks in large part to Jacqueline Patoka. She is a local resident who was very close to a missing couple and their daughter. They actually rented their unit in the building from Jackie's family. Jackie posted videos of the briefings to Instagram for faraway friends and relatives to follow. And then Jackie gave us permission to use those videos. We're also going to hear parts of some exclusive interviews from local news station CBS4. A scene like this briefing room is something Americans are all too familiar with as part of the standard protocol of mass shootings, natural disasters, and other catastrophes. But in the immediate aftermath of Surfside, the situation was chaotic. We don't know. That's the sound of frustrated families, friends, and survivors, their emotions boiling over the morning of the collapse. CBS4 captured that scene. The crowd had overflowed Surfside's tiny community center, a space way too small to handle any part of a mass casualty crisis. And it certainly wasn't private. So on Friday, just one day after the building went down, officials made the decision to move the information center a mile up the road to the Grand Beach Hotel, where it stayed for weeks. 
Maggie Castro and her colleague, Assistant Miami-Dade Fire Chief Ray Jadala, ran those briefings. Thank you for coming in. For those who weren't here from the last couple of meetings, we're going to give a couple of uh, briefings and then we're going to also do it in Spanish, so back and forth. We have no problems with you reporting. All we ask is that when people are standing up and they become emotional, don't record the individuals in the room. So I have no problems. You want to record me. I have no problems. You re want to record all of us. Again, that's fine. But don't start recording you know, your family and friends that are next to you. It's, it's just inappropriate. So gauge the uh, camera towards this way, please. Thank you. Again, only thing I ask, once again, please, I understand, you know, there's a lot of emotions, including myself, but all I'm asking is just uh, hold the questions to the end, and we'll attempt, we'll attempt to uh, answer as many as we can. As Jadala spoke, crews were crawling all over the two-story pile of debris, cutting and digging through concrete and metal, fighting fires and finding remains. All the while, they listened for signs of life, but since the early hours, there hasn't been a single cry for help. In regards, remember I had mentioned that we continue to hear sounds, and I can't emphasize enough, it's not voices, okay? It, it could be a tap, it could be a scratch, it could be the metal contorting underneath the, uh, the rubble. It's not, you know, anybody uh, yelling or anything like that. We haven't heard any voices uh, since uh, the time. While he took questions, Jadala stood next to a large aerial picture of the site, patiently explaining the painstaking and dangerous work, what was being found and not found. The families were anxious, agitated, and exhausted. Have, have we found any, uh, any alive victims so far? No, not, not since uh, 6.05, the day of the, uh, of the uh, incident. Okay. Ma'am? How many pieces do you find? Ma'am, I'd rather not answer that question. Um, it, just out of emotionally, I prefer not to answer that question. Sir, with the black shirt. There are remains, there are victims that are being found here, body parts, but the only hope that seems to be out of the pockets that are here. So why are you putting all the focus to find it in these pockets now, instead of finding the, the victims that have already passed? So, so the question is, since, a lot of the pockets are along this area. We have machinery there that are cutting the columns that are hanging, large pieces of concrete that are hanging over the building before we can put rescuers there. However, we are putting uh, listening devices, we are putting cameras as close to the area and then looking down to locate those voids. We cannot put any human life until we cut those, uh, those boulders, and we have been cutting them, and we've been slowly moving down that area. But remember, we've already also been putting technology and dogs over those overhangs. I just want to once again remind everyone that we're still in the search and rescue phase. We're not anywhere close to finishing, but again, we haven't given up hope. But at that point, hope was hard to come by in Surfside. And still, it was up to Ray Jadala and Maggie Castro to do whatever they could to try to comfort these people, to soften the daily blows of bad news in this unthinkable tragedy. There's no script for this. That's why it made it so difficult, so different. And even if there was a script, you wouldn't be able to follow it. No, you can't so, script yeah. what you're gonna say yeah. to someone. Can't. Because you don't know what that person's gonna be feeling that day. Yeah. Every emotion you can think of took place in this room. 
Again, these briefings were closed to the media, but Miami Herald reporter Samantha Gross, who had covered this community for six years and lived just minutes away, was allowed in for one day, and she just observed. She didn't speak with any of the families. In the lobby of the Grand Beach Hotel, there were a lot of people bustling around, giving hugs to people. It was clearly an emotional scene, and everyone there was wearing a wristband, which denotes that they were either a family member or a friend with a missing loved one, or perhaps a resident of the Champlain Towers that survived the collapse. And those were the only people who were allowed in the hotel, so it was, it was clearly marked who they were. This was a few days after the collapse, so people were clearly really tired and in need of that space. And so that was kind of, the lobby scene was just full of people trying to get information. On the second floor, however, was where the family reunification site, the proper site, was set up. Every door in this area was marked with a piece of paper that said, grief counselor or different county services, please knock. I mean, it was very clear that they were trying to set up almost office-like spaces for people to to get resources or take care of paperwork that they might need to fill out to put themselves on the record as looking for a lost loved one. I tried to stay kind of on the periphery, and I looked in the door, and I just wrote down everything that I saw. And it was a lot of signs of grief. It was people kind of clutching a cup of coffee almost desperately, holding one another's hands almost desperately, scrolling on their phones or tapping on their phones or talking on the phone, trying to get scraps of information. And all of them were just waiting for news. And every few hours, they would get an update from Miami-Dade County officials, um, from the police and fire. That gave them small snippets of information, and it was always three numbers. It was how many were missing, how many were found dead, and how many were unaccounted for still, because this was pretty early in the search. There was an easel that had a big map of the Champlain Tower South that had all the apartment numbers and colored out zones for where the rescue mission was looking. And that was to serve the purpose of people being able to see where their loved ones may have been and get more information when the search and rescue teams were searching a certain zone. So that was almost like this beacon in the middle of this large conference room that people kind of gathered around and went up to look at and take notes. Um, And that was kind of the energy in the room was just a lot of um, desperation and sadness. I think that the sadness was starting to to come over a lot of people who may have been shocked. If there's any possibility that we have victims that are alive in the rubble, they're gonna be in these void spaces. And we can't rush the pile and collapse these void spaces and eliminate any possibility of finding people. So things have to be done methodically. Things have to be done step by step. And that is the reason you see that we take the time that we take to do things, because we're doing them right. There's times where we use our dogs, and when the dogs hit in one area, we start searching more in that area. We use every technology available to us, which includes sonar, which includes microphones, includes cameras. We do even hand removing debris, hand by hand, bucket by bucket, to make sure we do not disturb the pile, and we do not cause another collapse that could potentially 
destroy any void spaces where people could be alive. So we understand your frustration. We know that there's nothing more that you would love to be able to be on the pile, removing debris yourselves. And believe us, every single member that's out there, when they're not, it's not their turn to work, they're just anxious to get back on the pile, to be able to remove the debris and get people out. We all want to do it, but it would be impossible to have every member working at the same time. We cannot have that amount of weight on the pile because then again, we are reducing the chances of finding those live victims. Thank you. Thank you. As the days wore on, Jadala started using a video screen with a series of aerial photographs and diagrams that broke the site down almost like a one-block war zone. The families hung on as hard as they could to his every word. This is the room where it happened. This is the room where everyone was at their worst, including me and my family. Rachel Spiegel's 65-year-old mother, Judy, lived on the sixth floor. And we first heard Rachel last episode when she was trying to get to the building and asking a police officer for help. Rachel attended every single meeting and she sat in the same chair every single day. She told reporter Jim DeFiti of CBS4 Miami what it was like. There were a lot of tears in this room, a lot of heartbreak, you know, a lot of devastation. When they said that they hadn't found a space larger than eight inches, how do you rescue someone from that type of space? I mean, it's hard to hear. Josh Spiegel, Rachel's brother. That's the only hope you have is that some of the structure is going to brace itself and create a void for someone to be able to survive through. And that that not being found at all is unbelievable. CBS cameras followed Rachel and her brother taking their father to see the building. They walked down the beach together, clutching each other, shuddering with grief. This is not going to be pretty. It's worse in person than it is in the videos, okay? So do you see it? No, I'm seeing it. Can't you see it? Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. He's okay. He's okay. I want my mommy. He's going to be okay. All the Spiegels could see from the police tape was a massive heap of shattered concrete and metal. An entire wing of the building, the long side of an L, had simply sheared off and pancaked down. Beds, furniture, even clothing, everything in those apartments was just flapping in the breeze. The image is nothing short of surreal, and it was what everyone was struggling to understand. How could a modern apartment building, a home, for so many people just suddenly fall to the ground? There were so many questions, some that might never be answered. Did Judy Spiegel survive the initial collapse? Was there any warning? What were the chances that anyone could still be found alive? Maggie Castro and Ray Jadala were joined by experts who tried to help the families understand the entire situation. Structural engineers detailed the dangers of moving debris too quickly. 
Miami's medical examiner's office explained the painstaking process of identifying remains. And just two days after the collapse, a world-renowned search and rescue team from Israel arrived and went straight from the airport to the site, then to the briefing. We brought some of the representatives to also uh, speak to you. They flew in first thing this morning. They've been here since 6.30. We have the team embedded with our task force members. So at this point, I want to just introduce some of the members. Colonel Golan Vak was in charge of the Israeli team. We came from Jerusalem yesterday to be with you guys. We found here, as the chief said, hundreds of people, very professionals. We have operated in dozens of places all over the world, in Haiti, in Turkey, in Honduras, in Mexico. You are in good hands, I can assure you. Vak is a man with a precise military manner, shaved head, rolled up sleeves, deep voice, and a solemn expression. So he was an imposing, but also soothing, commanding presence, especially for Surfside's large Jewish community. He stood in his uniform in the dim conference room, the drapes drawn against the summer light and heat outside. The collapse was very tough. And the pile right now is in a very bad situation. I must say that. You all know that. You saw the pictures. It collapsed like, like an explosive. All the floors, one above another, with almost no space. But we still have hope. And this hope, that hope, allows us, with the great firefighters of your country, to wake up in the morning after two hours of sleeping and keep working. And this is what we do. So we can be sure that we will find every one of them. We hope alive. The families, many of whom are Jewish, are curious to find out the commander's take on the situation. Do we have any kind of a sense on like the overall timeline before we can theoretically, and I know it's a moving timeline, but mm-hmm. just to get it mm-hmm. fall apart. Mm-hmm. In Haiti, it was one week from the collapse. The government of Haiti declared that the search and rescue period has ended. Four hours later, we found Jules France. So it's acceptable professionally all over the world that after one week, the chances are very, very low. But I told you this story and we hope. Any other questions? No questions, Joshua. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Thank you for coming. Golan Vag gave an interview to pool reporters next to the site. When you got a phone call from America, you arrive. One of the most difficult and a complicated uh, situation that I ever seen. We are almost six days from the collapse. There are minor chances, but I would not say that there are no chances. 
you have to understand where exactly were the bedrooms. Colonel Vok explained how Israeli software mapped the building down to where people's beds were located to try to track where those people may have ended up in the rubble. We built 3D models in Israel and according to the, to the, uh, to the finding and to the information that the family gives us exactly where do they sleep in the dining room, in the bedroom, you can build the layers according to the situation right now. So our purpose is to get the first responder understand where exactly is he digging. We're trying to find new places to, to, to penetrate. Sometimes we cry. It's natural. Uh, uh, we are working uh, together. We talk every night. Uh, we do summaries every night with all the people. We talk and we share and it gives us strength and it's our job. On Sunday, day three post-collapse, there are little red flags marking human remains scattered across the site. Since the first day, nobody has been found alive. Jadala does have a bit of good news, though, something the families have been asking for. They're going to be allowed to visit the site. But there are rules. Jadala is worried that emotions will run too high. So one of the uh, requests that came from uh, the families was the uh, visitation of the site. Uh, we are going to accommodate starting today. Uh, we are going to start approximately 2 p.m. Um, I'm going to give you further details on it, but I'd like the, uh, the Madam Mayor to speak to you about uh, some of the, uh, you know, the rules that she's also enforced for us. So Can please, hold on one second. Can we leave that for the end? Yes. Yes. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm we don't care. We want the update. You're relevant. So we're limiting it to an hour. I believe, you know, it gives you an opportunity to see the site and, you know, to pray, to, to yell, to do as you please. You cannot attempt to go to the site. If people attempt to go to the site, physically leave the hotel and walk into the site, you're going to ruin it for everyone else. Because there are security issues, because there are safety issues, please do not do it. If you want to scream, you want to yell, you want to cry, you want to point your anger at us, do so. But do not try to jump over the balcony, do not try to exit the hotel. Please, you're, you're, you're going to ruin it for everyone else. Jadala also has a warning for the families about the harsh reality of what they're about to witness. Understand what you may see. Remember, this is an active scene. Okay, you may see, I, I just have to prepare you, okay? It's like anything else, it's the truth. You may see a victim. You may see human remains. If you don't believe that you could, you know, accept that, talk to us, we'll see what we could do. But if you just want to show up, look at the site and turn away, we're fine with that. But just understand what you may encounter. The mayor of Miami reminded the families that they would be there alone no media, no politicians, just them. Excuse me, I'm just going to speak briefly to let you know that your visits will be confidential. There will be no elected officials allowed on the site. It's a private and personal time, and we want to protect that. That's Thank all I want you to you. know. Thank you. After the collapse, there were requests from family members to get closer to the site. 
Reporter Sam Gross has covered this community for six years and understood how important this was to all of the families, but especially Surfside's large Jewish community. Officials had blocked off the site, you know, in several blocks in either direction. And people wanted to be closer because, as is custom in the Jewish tradition, a body should never be left alone until it is properly buried. And there were a lot of people who wanted to be close to those, to those bodies, to keep them company, and to pray for them. And so a few days later, it was June 27th, so, you know, three days after the collapse, there were buses arranged, Miami-Dade County buses, to take family members in shifts to the site so they could spend some time with the rubble. And they were able to pray and mourn and um, cry. Work on the site had stopped. Family members sobbed. Some screamed into the wind. The smoking rubble remained silent. Not only was the pile of debris dangerously unstable, the weather was slowing the search. It's Florida in summer. The heat, rain, and humidity are quickly deteriorating human remains. The operation stops every time lightning is spotted. To make matters worse, fires kept cropping up deep inside the pile. Time and patience were running out. We had to suspend many of the operations as a result of the uh, fire that was uh, burning uh, underneath. You better focus on this and rules, and you're scared to bend them. I understand that. You don't understand. I do understand in regards to, listen, it's not just your, your family, it's everyone's family, okay? I'm, and I'm aware. Folks, 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 this way. Look at me, look at me, folks. From the very beginning, all of the families have been desperate for information. My nephew and all the family, they were in 1010. The last name is Bettengill. P-E-T-T-E-N-G-I-L-L. And if you find, please call me if you know anything. My name is Juby, please. They came yesterday for a vacation. And uh, to celebrate her birthday. Which ones? Her birthday, Sophia's birthday. How old is she? Sophia is, my daughter's age 36. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we're missing them. How are they okay with sitting in command centers, wasting precious time when people have the ability to survive? People have the ability to be alive and to be taken and, 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 and be brought help or, or medical assistance, whatever they need. My cousins are on the second floor. It's at the farthest end of the site. And it wasn't touched. It wasn't touched and it's still not being touched. I mean, two bodies, they, they took out two bodies. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord cause his face to shine upon you. The Lord be gracious unto you. Around the corner from the collapse, a memorial sprung up on a chain-link fence. Pictures of the missing. A sea of flowers, candles, stuffed animals, and mementos. A black lantern with Hebrew lettering. Prayers for the dead. Shalom, shalom, shalom. 
the law of Israel had to know a God, had to had to know a God. In the conference room, Jadala continued to walk through the process, doing his best to soften the blows of devastating news. We've now completed searches in grids eight, and I'm sorry, uh, grids nine and 10, which is the uh, building nine and the parking. So just bear with me what I'm about to say because it's, uh, you know, it's, it's gonna sink in. I, I understand it's very emotional, okay? It's not necessarily that we're finding victims, okay? We're finding human remains. <laughs> As we have said, and this is what the as the building came down, in cual? The, the, the pancake collapse, what we're recognizing is that we're having a hard time finding, you know, some of the, uh, the bodies that are still intact. Now, what we're finding is, again, uh, human remains. That's why when you guys keep asking me, you know, how many victims have we found? It's, emotionally, for me, I'm trying to find a way to locate, uh, you know, your loved ones. But I can see the emotion in you. And ladies and gentlemen, remember that this was a 12-story building. And everything is kind of crumbled down to, you know, only a couple of uh, feet. And again, as we continue to layer through, we continue to locate, you know, the what we're looking for victims, including live. However, we are looking, we are finding what appears to be human remains. Both Jadala and Castro recalled that for them, this moment was one of the hardest parts. How do you explain to loved ones that you're not finding, you know, their, their loved ones, some of their loved ones intact? You could just see either A, their eyes just, you know, got enlarged or half the crowd, you know, sunk their faces in their hands or some of them, started to, you know, quietly cry. Um, these are these are sights and emotions that you will never be able to, you know, forget. There's no way that a brain can fathom what was out there, could picture it, could imagine it. Every time we had to give them a news like that, the reason we're having difficulty is because every time we look for bloodstains, the rain washes it away. That's like, they're like, what? You're looking for what? Because in their minds, they're picturing their family members intact. And that wasn't the case anymore for a lot of people. So giving them that news, they just sank. Right now, it is a slow and painful process in regards to you know, what we've been dealing with. As the days wore on, Jackie Patoka herself asked a difficult question. Couldn't they just try to go faster, even if it was riskier? Can I ask a question? I know you guys are very busy, but can't you go faster since there isn't much to lose? I'm sorry for saying it like that, but could you be more aggressive and move the rubble more quickly? Her question is, knowing that we are a week into the aftermath of the collapse, is there any method that we can use just becoming more aggressive in the, in the method of searching because we're running out of time? Yeah. So everything that we can basically, you know, exhaust is, is there. And everything between machinery and personnel, every time we try to get aggressive, as you see, we have a shift in the building. So everything that we could 
basically throw at this. We have, but unfortunately, we just keep on hitting roadblocks. And there were more dark clouds on the horizon, literally. With a hurricane closing in on South Florida, could the storm blow the rest of the building down? Is it safe to keep searching at all? Coming up next on Collapse, Disaster in Surfside, telling the hard truth about the rescue operation. It has been determined that we are going to transition from search and rescue to search and recovery. I ask that you lean on each other. The national attention on a tiny seaside town. President Biden mourns with the families. I sat with one woman who had just lost her husband and her little baby boy. They're praying and pleading, let there be something happen for me that's good. Because I have, like many of you do, some idea what it's like to suffer that kind of loss. The Miami Herald starts finding clues about what went wrong. This was the first time that I had seen anything that pointed to problems with the building. My instinct was that this was probably big. Engineers called the type of collapse that happened at Champlain Towers a progressive collapse, meaning it starts small. Then, either due to damage or degradation or poor design, that collapse progresses and becomes worse and worse, almost like an avalanche. And who built Champlain Towers? Did a construction boom and big money mean corners were cut? These were kind of the revolutionaries. These were the guys saying, hey, we can change Surfside. We can make this place something bigger, something better, something more exciting. And we can make money while we're doing it. So I think that that was certainly accelerating some of this dysfunction as the 70s kind of gave way to the 80s. All that and more coming up on Collapse, Disaster in Surfside. Collapse, Disaster in Surfside is produced by Treefort Media, the Miami Herald, and the McClatchy Company. Visit miamiherald.com forward slash surfside dash podcast, that's all lowercase, to learn more about our investigation and to read articles mentioned in today's episode. And if you can, please rate the episode as well, as it'll help others find our podcast. Our hearts and our admiration go out to our guests who have so bravely share their stories so that we may bring to light the many stories of all the people impacted by this tragedy. We also want to thank the experts who have joined us for sharing their insights. Special thanks to the team at WLRN in Miami, as well as CBS 4 News in Miami, for sharing supplementary materials to help us tell this story. Collapse, Disaster, and Surfside was executive produced by Kelly Garner and Lisa Ammerman for Treefort Media. Monica Richardson, and Rick Hirsch for the Miami Herald. I'm your host, Paul Bieben. The series was written and produced by Eric Salat and me, Paul Bieben, for Treefort Media. Editing by Maxwell Carney and Abigail Sullivan. Mixed by Maxwell Carney. Treefort Head of Audio is Tom Monahan. Line produced by Oscar Guido. English translations by Anne Liu and Lindsay Whistler with additional production assistance by Jared Brom, Haley Mandelberg, Colin Motil, and Lindsay Whistler. For the Miami Herald, Monica Richardson serves as executive editor. Managing editor is Rick Hirsch. Senior Vice President of News, Kristen Roberts. Senior Vice President of Advertising, Tony Berg. McClatchy Managing Editor, Cynthia DuBose. Audience Development Editor, Adrian Rui. Miami Investigative Editor, 
Casey Frank. Miami Herald Senior Editor, Dave Wilson. Miami Herald Information Services, Monica Leal. Copyright 2021 by Treefort Media and the Miami Herald. Sound Recording Copyright 2021 by Treefort Media.